0: His word it is so good and encouraging and refreshing testament of God's faithfulness to his people and let us go before the Lord in prayer Lord we're so encouraged by your word as the psalmist prayed for deliverance you answered him he cried out Lord to you I lift up my soul oh my God I trust in you Lord, let that be our cry as believers, that, Lord, we lift our souls up to you and to you alone, not to Facebook or social media or even to our friends, but, Lord, let our first call be to lift up our souls to you because, Lord, ultimately you are the only one that we can trust. You are the only one, Lord, before whom we will not be ashamed. Lord, you're the only one who will not let our enemies triumph over us. Lord, your word says, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. But rather, let those who deal treacherously with your people, let them be ashamed. And Lord, the psalmist calls out, as we all should, to show us your ways. Oh, Lord, teach us your path. Lord, teach us the way that we should walk. Teach us the way, Lord, of obeying your commandments, of living a life of holiness and and righteousness before you, an upright life, a life of integrity and a life of honor, a life of sacred honor. Lord lead us in your truth. The truth that is found in Scripture. The truth that is found in the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, lead us in your truth, not our truth, not uh, our our version of the truth. Lord, is not truth. Lord, lead us into your truth, which is the only truth that matters, which is the only truth that that exists. Christ himself, when he prayed for future believers in John 17, he says, Father, sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. Lord, lead us in your truth, your ways, and teach us, Lord, for you are the God of our salvation, Lord. You are the God who saves us. You are the God who delivered us from the bondage, from the slavery of sin, as we read earlier in our Gospel Prime. Lord, you are the one who, who saved us from certain death and certain judgment and certain eternal condemnation in hell. Lord, you are the one who saved us through the work of Jesus Christ. And because of our faith in him, Lord, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous in your eyes because we are in Christ and we have his righteousness. Lord, you are our salvation. You are the God of our salvation. And because of that, Lord, we will wait all day on you. And Lord, also remember us as frail human beings. The psalmist said remember Lord your tender mercies. And your loving kindnesses. For they are from of old. Lord you have always been loving. uh, And kind to your people. To your people Israel. Your covenant people you were Lord. Even when they sinned and rebelled against you Lord. You still brought them into uh, the promised land. Lord even when they sinned against you there Lord. You still although you brought judgment upon them. Because you loved them Lord you still remain their covenant God. So Lord, remember your tender mercies. Do not remember our sins nor our transgressions, Lord, but according to your mercy, for your goodness sake, O Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hold our sins against us, that you don't hold them over our heads, that you don't always remind us of our sins. But Lord, you cast them into the sea of forgetfulness and you remember them no more. Man may remind us of our sins. Man may remind us of our, our, our shortcomings, our misdeeds. But, Lord, you never do. And, Lord, you do this because you are good and upright. You teach sinners in the way. You teach us, Lord, your ways. And we pray, Father, that you continue to do that. And Lord, the psalmist asks, who is the man who fears you? That man, that woman is the one that you would teach in the way that you choose. Lord, let us all be people who fear you, to have a reverential fear of you, to have a worshipful fear of you, Lord, because you are the sovereign God. And Lord, your word declares that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear you. And you will show us your covenant. And Lord, let our eyes ever be toward you. Lord, have mercy on us. Sometimes we're desolate and afflicted. Sometimes the troubles, Lord, of our heart are enlarged. Lord, some people in here this morning are probably in distress right now. We have distressing situations. We have distressing circumstances. And Lord, as the psalmist we cry, Lord, look on our affliction and our pain. And while you do that, Father, forgive us all of our sins. Lord, keep our souls and deliver us. Let us not be ashamed, those who put their trust in you. Lord, let integrity and uprightness preserve us as we wait on you. And Lord, you are such a good and faithful God as your people wait on you. It's not an impatient wait, Lord, but it is a wait of certainty because we know that you are the God who patiently deals with your children as we wait on you. As the psalmist says in Psalm 130 and 5, I will wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. Because, Lord, the truth is frequently due to circumstances in our lives or or sins we commit, we fall away from the straight path in life. When we wander and go astray from you and from your perfect will, Lord, we we feel lost, we feel sad, and, and we feel such anguish in our heart. But, Lord, in times like these, we as your children, we who are yours, we come to the throne of grace with, with, with fervent pleas and insistent pleas. Lord, we, we keep coming to you and, and pleading with you. Lord, when there seems to be no exit, no way out, We cry out to you, Lord, God, from the innermost parts of our souls. And, Lord, the comforting thing is that you always hear our prayers. You always hear the prayers of the saints. And, Lord, sometimes the answer may come immediately. But, Lord, at other times, you tell us to wait. And, Lord, when you tell us to wait, we learn to persevere in the faith hoping for the promises that we know, even though you appear to be silent below my prayers, that we may all remember that you are true and that your promises are sure. Just as your promises to Israel were sure in the book of Joshua, as we've been studying the last few months, your covenant promises to Israel were fulfilled. And as Joshua told the people, not one word of your promises has failed. And, Lord, let us remember that. Let our hearts not despair to the point of breaking. Because, Lord, we're not without hope in this world. Lord, you are true, and your word never fails. And in this we hope. As we hope in you, Lord, we continue to look to you. And, Lord, just as a side note, continue to remember Brother Harvey as he recovers to gain his balance back so that he can be walker free. May he continue to hope in you also and be patient with the process that you have him going through. And the nurses that are working with him, Lord, that you you give them the grace also. And that he may have the grace to be patient with them. Lord, any of our other church members who may be afflicted in any way, any any pains in their bodies, any type of suffering, Lord, that that we be patient with you as we we look to you and trust in you, Lord, knowing that your promises are always true. May we never, Lord, allow our circumstances to take us away from trusting in you. But, Lord, may they lead us to the cross even more. And, Father, this morning also pray for our brethren around this area who are preaching the gospel who are laboring in the truth of your word who are shepherding their flock we pray Lord that you be with these men this morning be brother Steve Mays and brother Curly and brother Josh Henderson and uh, brother Sylvester over in Zimbabwe uh, Josephus and brothers Goblage over in Liberia uh, brother Cody Hale and Bob St. John and Brother Carlton uh, Weathers and Phil Moser, Anthony uh, Cook. Lord, remember all of our faithful men. Justin Holland up at Mountain View, Lord, bless all of us as, as men to continue to lead our churches well. Continue to shepherd the flock of God. And bless the followers, the congregants, with the ministries of these men as they lead their churches. Lord, fill us all with your spirit to teach your word well and to lead your, word, lead your people well this morning. And Lord, as we come down to this message this morning about marriage, as we finish up on this section in Ephesians, Lord, I pray that your spirit be with me. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, to teach this text well and, and send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. Oh, Lord, may we be blessed and encouraged and also convicted by what we hear uh, this morning to your glory and to your honor we pray amen amen we're continuing in the book of Ephesians and uh, this is the third message in this section again we're talking about walking wisely you know, Paul told the Ephesians, as we read earlier back in the fourth chapter, to walk wisely, adopt as fools, and understand what the will of the Lord is. And we're continuing to talk about the topic of marriage. So this morning, we're going to look at a few scriptures. So first, turn to Genesis 2, and then Matthew 19, and then we're going to look at our passage in Ephesians, and we're going to tie all of these things together. We read parts of Genesis 2 last week. Uh, We didn't get to the Matthew 19 part, but all this is going to make sense because the word of God, the word of the Lord, rather, makes sense. Everything is connected. It is one thread, one story of God's plan of redemption for man. We talked last week about, uh, two weeks ago, about where marriage began. We went back to Genesis. So now we're going to go back to this. And our uh, message this morning is the biblical marriage and its implications. And I distinguish biblical marriage from uh, what the world calls marriage. And we will uh, make those distinctions as uh, we go through this message. Our time in the word of the Lord. So Genesis 2. Looking at verses 21 through 25, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm reading from the ESV. This is verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man who was Adam. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this is at, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed now let's turn to Matthew 19 and these are the words of Christ and Christ in this passage spoiler alert is going to refer back to the Genesis passage that we just read. So Genesis 19 verses 4 through 6. Again he was being tested about divorce so he's teaching here about divorce that is the context. So let's look at verse 3. Genesis 19, I'm sorry Matthew 19 verse 3 flesh what therefore God has joined together let no man separate so if you notice that Jesus referred back to the Genesis account when it came to marriage now we're going to connect all this together back to our passage here in Ephesians the fifth chapter which is where we are this morning Paul says it here again about the husband and his duty to his wife. Look at verse 31 of uh, Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, father, and mother, and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, when you look back in the book of Genesis, the, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is the book of the beginnings of all things in creation. One thing you will note if you read through this, especially the first two chapters of Genesis, you will learn about distinctions in creation. Distinctions are things that distinguish different things. OK, that's what a distinction is. So in the book of Genesis, especially. You will see distinctions being made. You'll see distinctions between uh, the heavens and the earth. God has separated the heavens from the earth. You see the distinction between male and female. Genesis 1, 27. Uh, in the image of God, he made them male and female, created he them. You have the distinction between husband and wife. A man shall leave his father and mother. Those are distinctions in creation. And the other distinction that is made is the distinction between man and the rest of creation what distinguishes man from the creation? man alone is made in the image of God trees are not made in the image of God rocks are not made in the image of God animals are not made in the image of God but man alone is made in the image of God man alone possesses soul and body animals don't have souls only man does animals don't have more agency only man does why because man possesses a soul man can think man can reason animals don't think and they don't reason as people do you won't see a dog getting electrocuted for killing someone they may put them down but that's only because that dog killed someone but that's actually describing more agency to a dog which shouldn't be the case but Man and animals, man and trees, we're not one with the trees. We're not one with the earth. The earth is not our mother. Nature is not our mother because there's a separation between man and creation. So those are all distinctions. But what has happened in our world, particularly with great speed in the last um, century or so, is an effort to erase all distinctions. Because when you remove distinctions from the picture. You don't know what can be what you don't know if a man can be a man or a woman can be a woman as we see in our culture. You have pantheism where, where people say that we're one with the earth, that we're one with the mountains and the trees, that there are no there are no distinctions. But marriage is only for man. And not the rest of creation. That's what distinguishes man from the rest of creation. Marriage is for man. Man meaning human beings. Only in creation do humans get married. We're the only ones in creation that get married. Animals don't get married. Trees don't get married. Rocks don't get married. They can't get married. We can't marry animals and animals can't marry us. Marriage is an exclusive human institution that God had ordained and that is another thing that distinguishes us from all of creation and this leads us to where we are now in our culture where you see that there's a lack of respect for the authority of scripture and this is why we are where we are in our nation in our world because there's a lack of authority, lack of rather respect for the authority of scripture. That's why marriage is the way that it is because the church has lost her respect for the authority of scripture. And it started in America in particular in the uh, 19th century or the 1800s. It started in the seminaries and then it spread to the churches and denominations through the pastors who graduated from those seminaries and who became leaders of apostate denominations like the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church and and some of these other apostate denominations. Apostate meaning denomination, they have departed from Orthodox Christian truth. But it started in the seminaries in the 1800s or the 19th century. James Garlow, a former pastor out in California, he wrote a book called How God Saves Civilization. I read this book back in 2021. It's a good book. And, and this is what he said about the authority of Scripture. He says, if belief in the Scriptures as the final authority of faith and practice is abandoned, the church loses touch with the Word of God and will no longer be reformed by its power. that's what happens when the church doesn't hold scriptures as the final authority the church loses its power because the word of God is where the power is if the word of God is not true and if the word of God is not finally authoritative think about this question what line do we go back to to be measured by if the Bible is not The final authority on all things. What line do we go back to be measured by? We have the straight edge of Scripture. Or the plumb line as it is called in the Old Testament. Without the authority of Scripture, who draws the lines? Man. Man draws the lines and man is the standard. And this is why we are where we are in our culture because man's line is always being crossed. It is always being extended and it is always being moved. Man's standard is always changing. So when you discard the authority of scripture, you have man. (laughs) And what does man do? Man ruins everything. Why? Because man is inherently sinful and inherently wicked and inherently depraved in his nature man left to his own devices creates chaos but we have a standard church and that is the scriptures the scriptures are the straight edge the scriptures are the plumb line we are in the chaos we are in right now because man is drawing the lines And man is the standard. And remember again. That standard is always being crossed. And when you cross that standard. You got to do what? Move the line. And when you cross it again. You got to move it. You got to keep extending that line. Why? Because man's standard is always changing. But we have something that's more. transcendent than that. A.W. Toes are the late pastor, preacher, and theologian of the uh, mid-20th century. In his book that I, uh, that I read, he said, How God Utters His Authority. He says, the Bible is a vehicle of God's authority. This book is called the Book of. The Book of the Lord, the Good Word of God, the Holy Writings, the Law of the Lord, the Word of Christ. The oracles of God, the word of life, and the word of truth. These are descriptions of the word through which God utters his authority. And this word is said to be God breathed, indestructible, and eternal. In the word, we have that unique thing. This book of the Lord, the uttered word of God, is that unique thing that always ought to be spelled out in capital letters. It is different from and above and transcending all others of its kind. It is uncompromising, authoritative, awesome, and eternal. And it is through this word that God exercises his supreme self-bestowed authority. For he never took his authority from men. The Lord never kneeled before anyone who touched his shoulder with the sword and said, Rise, sovereign God. There's nobody who could bestow sovereignty upon the sovereign God. God's word is authoritative. It has authority. And we must understand this. Whenever you're looking at the Bible, whenever you're reading scripture, you should always, it should always come to your mind that these are the very words of God. When you open up your Bible and you're reading, it should come to your mind. These are the very words of God. If you want to hear from God, read your Bible. If you want to hear the audible voice of God, read your Bible out loud. The Bible is the very word of God itself, and that is our authority. As Tozer said, the word of God is transcendent. That means it is above all other types of books. It is uncompromising. It is authoritative. And I always say this. And I will continue to quote this. When you try to build a world. While at the same time denying the God who created it. You will fail. You will fail. Despite all the technological advances that we make. In this world. A world that is absent of God. Will only fail. It will produce misery upon misery. It can't work because it won't work. And people are doing that with marriage. They're trying to rebuild or recreate marriage or redefine marriage, but it's not going to work. It's just going to bring misery. I remember growing up, uh, who remembers the show I Love Lucy with Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball? One thing I noticed, and this is how the culture has changed when it comes to, you know, and, and I love Lucy, they even remember they slept in separate beds. They didn't even sleep in the same bed. They both slept in twin size beds but they were married but that was the way life was in the 40s and, and 50s up until uh, the 60s when somebody came up with the idea of making a double bed and then a queen bed and then a king bed but in I Love Lucy you know her and Desi Arnaz they were they were married but they lived in separate beds and then you get to the Brady Bunch the Brady Bunch was the the blended family that's what the Brady Bunch was all about you know the whole blended family concept. We have basically two, quote, I don't like using this word, Step families coming together and, you know, living. There was, was a lot of them in that, in that, in that family. But we had the Brady Bunch come along. So you had the first uh, blended family on television. And, you know, the thing about Hollywood, Hollywood is always good at, at, at breaking uh, societal barriers and sometimes for the wrong reasons and with the worst outcomes. And then you went for the Brady Bunch to... The 90s, well, I'd say the 80s, you had shows like The Cosby Show. The Cosby Show was a very wholesome show because you had the husband and wife. You had, uh, I think Bill Cosby was Cliff Huxtable, and I forgot who Felicia Rashad, which Huxtable she was. But then, you know, he was a doctor, and she was a, I guess she was a stay-at-home mom, I'm not sure. She was a lawyer. You know, they were a happily married family, and they had children, I don't know how many children they had. But it was just a nice little picture, nice little marriage family. Nothing bad about it. And then he had a show called Home Improvement with, uh, with Tim Allen on it. You know, he was the man who worked and built and had a, a neighbor, Wilson, that was always looking over the fence. You could see the top of his eyes. One of my favorite shows on television. But, you know, he was married to his wife and had his son. And he was trying to raise and do the same thing. He was going, you had a picture of kind of a, like, just a wholesome, married family. And then it started getting worse when you had married with children. You had an Al Bundy and his wife's, I don't know her name, but her, her, act, her real name is Katie Seagal. You know, she was the wife and he was this curmudgeon of a husband, always complaining about stuff. And, and he had this little crush on the neighbor's daughter. You know, that's when things started getting more. That's actually pedophile, you know, but, you know but, but, but they made it laugh, laughter, and funny. And that's what the world does. You know, they make sin funny and appealing. And then next thing you know, you end up laughing at something that's kind of creepy and cringe you know but al bundy had a had, had a crush on the neighbor's daughter i think it was the uh, i forgot the girls the, the actress's name i know her name but i want to spend two minutes thinking about it but um anyway so he had married with children love and marriage you know goes together like a horse and carriage he was the bumbling husband you know so that's when things started to change in our uh society and then in the 2000s late 2000s you had the show called modern family and that's when the world really began to try to change things, that, that, that marriage and family could be any type of mix-up of, of people, two men, two women, you know, so forth and so on. So you, you notice the devolution of the family and of marriage in the culture. It just started devolving. That means it got, it got worse and worse and worse. And coinciding with that was in our culture, the, the rise of uh, cohabitation. And then you had the rise of non-biblical language being used for couples. And I talked about this last week. You have uh, people who call someone, they're living with their partner. Or words like spouse are used instead of husband or wife. And the word spouse, I did some research on it. The The word spouse is a... It's a clinical word. It's a word used in psychology and counseling circles. Because if you think about the word, the word spouse is a non-gendered word. Think about that. Think about how smart that the, the secularists are with that. Spouse is a non-gendered word. A spouse can be anybody. A man's, quote, spouse can be another man. A woman's, quote, spouse can be another woman. Or a person's spouse can be their dog, their animal. We say yuck now. Ten years ago, we didn't think that people would go around thinking that a man could actually be a woman. By having their bodies uh butchered and mutilated. We didn't think that was possible five years ago. Amen? It's coming, but the point is, is that the world is seeking to pervert everything that God has made to be good, and this is why defending biblical marriage is so important. This is why the authority of Scripture matters. I said this last week, and I said it the week before. Marriage is pre-political; it is pre-civilizational. It existed before any type of government. Any type of civilization was established, marriage was established by God. It was in the mind of God before the creation of the world. So as Christians, we are called to defend biblical marriage. Marriage according to scripture, marriage according to how God defines it. So the desire of our church is to speak clearly on the definition of marriage, the role of government and the church in the institution of marriage, and the link between the gospel and biblical marriage. And we see this in Paul's passage as we've been dealing with the last few weeks. Wives love your husbands, husbands love your wives. Why? Because this is a picture of who? Christ and the church. We have to know what biblical marriage is. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit who shows us this. We want to strengthen marriages within our, within our community, promote marriages within our church, encourage those who are living in relationships that are outside of the God-given pattern of marriage to repent of their sin and to serve as a defense against those who attempt to pervert the marital union. That's what we lovingly want to do as a church. And we also should seek to promote godly interactions within marital couples within their relationships. That no hatred or malice is being displayed in that marriage because as as Christians we ought to display to the world uh, a picture of the gospel when it does come to marriage, you know, we're like the Hatfields and McCoys. Then guess what? That's just not going to work. It's going to reflect badly on the world, and in a sense, that has happened with a lot of Christian marriages. It's, it's reflected badly uh, on the church, and then the world sees and says, well, "I need to get married." I mean, look at them—they're they're Christians. It's not that you're not going to have problems. Not—it's not that you're going to not going to have disagreements. Or misunderstandings. That's going to happen. But the glory of it is that. The marriage is still showing to be a picture. Of the church of Christ. And the church. And this all goes back to. The distinctions between. Man and creation. The rest of creation. That's what makes our union. um, Unique. Uh, So that's what makes our, uh, our union unique. So the big idea is that marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. It is ordained by the creator, as we read, and the savior of the world. Again, we're looking at distinctions here. So the first principle to note is affirmations and denials about marriage. First of all, we affirm that marriage, the definition of marriage comes from God. And what's the definition again? That marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, and it is ordained by the creator and savior of the world. So marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. And Jesus established this pattern of marriage again, as we read in Matthew 19 verses four through six. Well, he says again here, and I read, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, or let no man put asunder because marriage is something that God does that God defines that that God puts together the goal of a marriage should never be to divorce should never be that way in a a perfect world the ideal is to not divorce that's the ideal now that's not going to always happen but some people get married with the thought that okay if it doesn't work out or just in case it doesn't work out we will get divorced. No, no one should ever go into a marriage even thinking about that word. Looking for that parachute. Because that's a dishonor to the marital union. You're actually wasting your time, your husband or wife's time, and you're also wasting time of those who are the witnesses there uh, at that wedding. We also deny that any institution, whether it's government, church, or individual, can legitimately redefine marriage no institution can redefine marriage legitimately now you may say well the Supreme Court said well the Supreme Court did say that but the Supreme Court doesn't redefine marriage because the Supreme Court did not establish marriage again marriage was established by God so no governmental organization no church no individual can legitimately redefine marriage or change it to something that it never was meant to be. Yes, there may be laws on the books. That's true. But that doesn't make for a a redefinition. That makes for a perversion of marriage more so than anything. So we must affirm that. And we deny that marriage is a social construct divide, uh, rather devised by human wisdom man again did not come up with marriage God did God came up with the idea for marriage it was not man because again like I said in the beginning if man draws the line then man is the standard and if man is the standard standard is going to always do what change but God is the one who draws the line scripture is our authority on marriage and scripture remains clear no matter what the culture says no matter how much people's feelings may get hurt God sets the standard his word is our final authority and if you claim to be a Christian you have to hold to what the word of God says about these things what does God's word say marriage is between one man and one woman that's the scripture standard if you got a problem with it take it up with God but we as a church are going to hold forth to that we're not going to compromise on that man doesn't get to define marriage because man didn't make up marriage it is a universal institution given to man by God We also affirm that God designed sexual identity, male and female, as part of his good creation. Because part of marriage, part of the marital covenant is to procreate. That is part of the marital covenant. Now, outside of fertility issues, a husband and wife is supposed to procreate. Outside of fertility issues, you know, because that, that may happen. The woman, the wife may be infertile. But under normal circumstances, the male to covenant is to produce children, to procreate. That's God's ideal. What he tell Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's being fruitful and bearing children. And that's also being fruitful and making the earth produce that was part of the marital covenant to do that who can't procreate two men or two women that shows you another reason why even just by nature two men and two women can't be married because part of the marital union part of the uh, distinction of that from anything else is the ability to procreate to have children and again that's why people are trying to tear down these distinctions So that that won't be the case. And also in these affirmations and denials. We deny the moral lawfulness of any type of sexual immorality or perversion. That the culture tries to regulate. And make acceptable. And this specifically includes adultery. Fornication, which is uh, sex outside the marital union, rape, pedophilia, incest, bisexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, polygamy, bestiality, pornography, lust, voyeurism, all these perversions of God's design. As Christians, we are to denounce those things because they pervert the marital union. And guess what? They actually hurt people. These types of lifestyles, they may be presented as fun and harmless on television and on social media, but guess what? It's going to lead to great misery. Misery upon misery. Because, again, people, if you try to build a world without God, you're going to have misery. If you don't do it God's way, it's going to be miserable. And people mask that misery by going to other sins drugs and alcohol and all types of other perversions. Why? Because they made a mess of their life by trying to build a world without God. I think that God somehow is going to bless that. Like my old folks say, God don't bless no mess. He's not going to put a blessing on something that's perverted and something that is against his order. He's just not going to do that. Why? Because he would be inconsistent with who he is if he did that. He would not be God. Because God has a standard. God has an order to things. He has an order to life, He has an order to creation. And whenever that order is tampered with, what are you going to have? Disorder. You're going to have chaos. Christ or chaos is either God's way or the highway is either God's way or chaos and when you bring in all these if you notice the world is trying to normalize all of these perversions and it's causing misery and ruin to people drugs are being fought to be legalized legalizing marijuana Legalizing, it's, it's a drug. And it's not a good drug. And people become enslaved. It's not called addiction. It's called enslavement to sin. They become enslaved to these drugs. <laughs> if it's so good for you. Anything that enslaves you is not good for you. Say that again. Anything that enslaves you is not good for you. But what is our world trying to do? Normalize the use of it. Decriminalize it, as they say. Making it okay to sell. And making it okay to smoke. So you can be part of the cool kids club. And why, if people are, if people are intellectually honest with themselves, which they're not going to be, why do people want to get high to escape? They want to escape. Why do people get drunk? To escape. That conscience. They want to escape their God conscience. That, that, their conscience to repent. Their conscience to turn. That conscience that God is always speaking to. That misery. They try to smoke the misery away. They try to drink the misery away. They try to snort that misery Away, But guess what? It's not going anywhere until you turn to Christ. But what is our country trying to do? Normalize all of these vices. Legalize them. People who are in same-sex relationships are not happy. They're miserable. You know why? Paul, turn to Romans 1 right quick. We're talking about the word of God being authoritative, right? This is what the word of God says about these people who are living in rebellion against him. He means, oh, they look so happy together. They're not. Because the Bible says they're not and I believe the Bible. Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. Again, we're talking about Affirmation of denials. We're we're talking about all the perversions that the world is trying to say is normal. Even the perversions of marriage and human sexuality in general. Look at what Romans 1 says. Beginning at verse 18. If there's one passage of scripture, Christian, that you need to know and get into your souls, is Romans 1, verses 18 through the rest of this chapter and I quote it a lot He says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all what ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so they suppress what the truth in what unrighteousness so suppressing the truth means that they what know the truth Every single person I'm talking to who can hear me right now knows God's, knows the truth. But what do the rebellious do? They suppress it in what? Unrighteousness by doing unrighteous things. Because look what Paul says, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. They know right from wrong. They know that two men and two women can't get married. They know that you're not supposed to mutilate your bodies. They know you're not supposed to murder your baby in the womb. Because you violated God's word by committing the sin of fornication. And now you're pregnant, but you want to kill your baby. They know that that is wrong. They know that in their conscience. It's something that would never leave them. You are the mother of a dead child. and You always will be. You murdered your child. That's going to be on their conscience. We're going to get to the grace. God does forgive. God does show grace. God does forgive the mother who does kill her baby. There's salvation to offer for her too. But the point I'm making of this is those who seem to be living and rebelling against God and seem to be enjoying it, they're not. So Paul says, what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Nobody can say that I don't know that God exists. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. They know that God exists. But what does Paul say in verse 21? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creature or creation rather than the creator who is best forever. Amen. So what did God do? He gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged the natural relations of those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for One another. So, what did God do? He gave those women up to their desires for other women and gave the men up for their desires to other men. He gave them up to their desires that they had. So, it was an act of judgment that He did that. Why? Because they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. So, when you see all these presentations of couples. Or polygamous groups, or polyamorous groups, or people swinging, and and, and you see all these perversions of marriage out there, and these people look like they're happy. They are not, they are miserable. God gave them over to those sinful desires. They're miserable. They want you to think, they're not trying to convince you as much as they're trying to convince themselves. Because, again, anything that is against God's order cannot work. So that's why we as Christians, we as the Living Church, will continue to affirm the things that God has ordained and deny the things that God has not ordained. Because we believe that God's word is true. We believe that any perversion of God's design is Is not going to lead to anything but misery. And that's why we teach that. Amen. The role of government. We affirm that God instituted human government. As his servant. To promote good and to restrain evil. That is the purpose of government people. It's in Romans the 13th chapter. What's the purpose of government again? To punish evil and to reward good. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2:13 and 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That is the chief role of government. But Now you have our government who is punishing the good and rewarding the evil. Now we also deny that the government has the right to institute laws which are contrary to God's revealed will. We follow the government as much as they, as long as they rather, institute laws that are in line with God's will. If they institute laws that are against God's revealed will, we don't obey them. Even when it comes to marriage. We submit to governing authorities as to the Lord. Until the government says. Sin against God. And at that point we say no. We would rather obey God. Than man. As the apostle said in Acts. Uh, 19 and 20. As Peter said we would rather obey. God than man. In the case where the government says disobey God's word. We don't do it. We don't bow the knee. Now we do affirm that governments should administer the institution of marriage as given by God for the sake of the common good. Not that the government shouldn't have any involvement, but we do it for, if they're doing it for the common good, then that's fine. But we also affirm that human government should protect the institution of biblical Marriage, and not try to destroy it, which is what our government is doing. Do you know one time our government did defend biblical marriage? There was something called the Defense of Marriage Act that was enacted back when President Bill Clinton was president. Back in the 90s, the Defense of Marriage Act, to defend and define marriages between one man and one woman our government actually believed that at one time believe it or not about 30 years ago but the so called marriage equality act that was passed earlier this year overturned the defense of marriage act and it wasn't a marriage equality it was a disrespect for marriage act that's what it actually was because it's set to redefine marriage other than what is found in scripture But even when the government does that, we are not to obey or to acquiesce to that. At the end, people, we obey God rather than man. We cannot affirm what God rejects. As believers, we can't do that. As a church, we won't do that. And as a pastor, I won't do that. Because one day, I'm going to have to stand before God and give him an account. If I bow the knee, if I compromise, I have to give an account for that. And all of us have to do the same thing. The government does have a role, but their role is not to institute things that pervert marriage when they do that then we don't obey lastly we get down to the gospel and marriage and this is where back to our passage in Ephesians here verses 31 and 32 Paul says again that this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church This is the gospel part of marriage. Marriage is a sacred institution because it pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. Through the distinct roles of a lifelong covenant between a man and his wife. That's what makes marriage sacred because it's a picture of Christ and his church. We deny that the picture of the relationship between Christ and his church can be fulfilled through any other civil union that is contrary to the God-given model of one man and one woman. We deny that. There's no other way to look at marriage other than the God-given model of one man and one woman. We affirm that without the power of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit, mankind is inclined to pervert God's design. That's why mankind needs to be saved. Because all of us are fallen by nature. All fallen people have, have unholy sexual desires. And that's going to show in the type of marriages that you see people trying to have. Why are they doing that? Because they're without Christ. A person who is an unbeliever is going to act like an unbeliever. <laughs> Basically. A person who is not born again is going to act like someone who's not born again. They're going to have desires of that type. Those who are in spiritual darkness because they're not in Christ, guess what? They're going to act like they're in spiritual darkness. You say, well, I don't understand why people think like that. Because they're in darkness. They need the light of the gospel. And that's where we come in to show them that Christ has a much better way, a much glorious way, a much more glorious way. one of the best things I ever did and I'm saying this in all truth was to marry Francia I ain't good. She's, a, she's been a blessing to my life one because and I'll tell you this she was she was a believer when I met her I did not want to marry a non-Christian woman but one I believe the Bible when it says don't be unequally with unbelievers I knew the misery that it would cause if I married somebody who wasn't a Christian like me Because even when I was in college, the church I was going to, we had some couples in our our church that were unequally yoked. And it doesn't work out well. The wife comes to church and the husband doesn't. The husband comes to church and the wife doesn't. They're fussing and arguing about how to raise your children, how to do this, how to do that. Why? Because they're not uh, not equally yoked. You know, I don't want to find a wife just for somebody to have fun with. That fun's going to. Uh, way off after a while my wife by God's grace was a believer and I met her family they're believers y'all met my in-laws before all of them are Christians I said man this is good she's a keeper (laughs) I was married to by God married to a good family a good godly family and that makes a difference That's how serious as Christians should take marriage. You don't marry somebody just because. They make you laugh. That's so shallow that I can always make you laugh. Sometimes they're going to make you have an attitude with them because you're acting stupid like I do sometimes. Because I'm a sinner. Yes. Fran does get upset at me sometimes. <laughs> because I do stupid things sometimes. You know, Wives never do anything wrong so I don't ever get upset at her uh, Mary. You know, I don't ever get a set of things. She'll never do anything wrong. You know, <laughs> my point is, is that. I I was attracted to her because she was a Christian. And I knew that, you know, me being a, a young believer. That it was best. And it would honor God. And that we could stand before God and, and recite those vows, knowing that. We're both united together in Christ. That's how we, as Christians, uphold biblical marriage. So, a couple applications here marriage perversion is not good, but Jesus Christ. Is the friend of. Sinners. Christ does save those. Who are in. Sin when it comes to. uh, uh, Marriage perversion. And as Christians. We're not to uh, act in a malicious way. Toward them. Because our reaction to them. Must be a loving example. Of how Christ. Came to save sinners. We have a young lady that works in our office. That's in a. Relationship with another woman. And uh, it's me and another. Christian uh, lady that works at, at our office. One of the other agents. And, and we, we've we been uh, evangelizing her. But we've been doing it with. With kindness. You, you better before. uh praying. Because we want their souls to be saved. We want them to be with Christ and not live in that that sin that they're living in that perversion and think that it's okay because it's not it's not going to lead to the saving of their souls if they remain in that relationship so me and the other uh, young lady that works there we, we, we do minister Christ to her cause want a soul to be saved I've mean, he even invited her to church a couple of times And she has too. But. The grace of God is that God. Does save these people. We can't be self-righteous. But we must help them to receive the forgiveness of God. in Jesus Christ. Because that's what they need. They don't know that they need it. But that's what they need. They need to be forgiven of their sins. And then lastly. Gospel marriages. And gospel witness as Christians the, our responsibility in the area of marriage is three things we have to promote and pursue God's pattern of marriage we are to help non-Christians see God's design for marriage as a glorious union and a picture of the union between Christ and his church and number three we submit to human government in the to the extent that it upholds God's standard for marriage when it doesn't we don't go along with the government but as Christians we have to have that witness before this world and ask that God may grant grace and strength to all of us in the fulfillment of those things amen let us pray Father as I ended I began my prayer Grant us grace and strength as believers in the fulfillment of these responsibilities of marriage. Lord, I pray for those in our church who desire to get married that they take heed to your word when it comes to that. To look at marriage not just for companionship, not just to to have somebody, but look at it as a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And Lord, those that have, have desire to get married also, that you may grant that desire to them, Lord, that you may bring someone, send someone their way, who is godly, who will uphold scripture, who will walk alongside them as they walk in Christ. And Lord, even those who don't desire to get married again, that they live their life of singleness to your glory, that they use the extra time they have to serve the needs of the church and of the saints. They don't, they don't just waste it away in, in doing frivolous things, but they do it to your glory, being good stewards of their time. And Lord, we pray for our couples, marriage couples, that we continue to love and serve each other well that the wives submit to the husbands that the husbands love the wives that be respectful of one another and that we show and we demonstrate what a good marriage union looks like to the world and also to the saints in our congregation Lord command what you will and give us the will to obey your commands in Christ's name I pray amen